How many of you have ever, moment of truth now, have ever complained about your boss? Most hands here. Wait, let me check some of the village staff. Uh, no. <laughs> Happy. <laughs> it, it's sort of part of our, our culture, right? We complain about our boss because they're the boss. That's just what you do. So water cooler talk and, and whatever. When I was in the computer business, I'd go into a lot of customers throughout Orange County and be working on, on employees' computers. And it's amazing, when I'm working on their computer and they're sitting there, they think that that is licensed to complain about their boss. I just heard it over and over and over again because we, we have a, a built-in, I believe, from our natural man, um, angst at authority over us, a, a desire to, to chafe at someone telling us what to do and, and someone that is uh, above us. Now think of where... We're at in First Timothy. We're talking about the church, and he's been talking about the church as a family, and that we are entrusted with the gospel. We are entrusted with, with sharing Christ with a world that desperately needs him. And God, in his sovereignty, has placed leadership in the church. And, and in, in Ephesians 4, we see that some are to, to lead and to teach and to equip the saints. And we see that throughout Scripture, that God has put leadership in the church so we can be on the same page, so we can move forward with the Gospel and being entrusted with the Gospel. But the challenge with a family and the challenge with this culture of everybody hates their boss or or talks about their boss, I didn't say hate, complains, um, that culture can easily infiltrate the church. And can come to a point where we distrust leadership in the church, where we're frustrated if leadership has the nerve to make a decision that we disagree with. And, and, and all of these things Satan would love to use in the family of God to divide the family. To divide us to a point where we are no longer going about his work and his ministry. We know that this was particularly true at Ephesus. This is the, one of the reasons why Timothy was sent was to deal with some of the issues with leadership. People, people's approach to leadership, but also some leadership that was out of line, that was teaching falsehood. And so you have in this situation this powder keg of leaders who aren't following God, some that are. There's this distrust for leadership. How could they move forward with the work of God? And so in today's text, Paul says, this is where we finally get down to one of his main points of 1 Timothy. Let's deal with it. Let's deal with it. How should we treat leadership in the church? How should we treat pastors in the church? How should we treat elders in the church? And and it's a little bit awkward to come to this text for me to talk about, okay, this is how you should treat pastors. Because I happen to be one of your pastors and and your your senior pastor. And we're going to talk about it. but, But awkwardness doesn't negate God's Word. And it doesn't negate that we should go through God's Word. My kids are learning the meaning of awkward. On vacation, we're driving along, and we pass McDonald's where they wanted to go. And we get, a, get about two blocks past it, and we had talked about going there, and I'd missed the, the turn. And my eldest, and I did get permission to use this story. Um, in fact, my, my kids, as they're walking out, says, remember to talk about awkward, Dad. Um, <laughs> my, my eldest says, wow, that was awkward. I'm like, I don't think that word, you're using that word like it means. I, I don't think you get that word. And, and other times he gets it. He was in piano lessons one time and 
forgot to practice that week, and his teacher says, so did you practice and do your work this week? And he says, ooh, this is awkward. Now, now he got it right there. (laughs) But passing McDonald's, no, no, that's just he didn't get what he wanted. There's nothing awkward about that. Um, Yesterday, we're watching baseball. Very sad day. (laughs) All all except for a few here. And... um, this commercial comes on with a scantily clad woman walking down the, 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 I don't know what she was walking down. I didn't have the controls by me, and Mark didn't have the controls by him. And we're like, where's the controls? We've got to fast forward. And, and Mark looks at that, and he says, wow, this is awkward. And I was thinking, okay, I have another illustration for how he doesn't understand the word. And then I was thinking, actually, that's a pretty good definition of the word. Because as believers, it should always be awkward to see sin. It should be always awkward to be in those situations. And I, I, I thought, wow, he, he has that right. But we come to something that may be perceived by some as awkward, but we're just going to study God's Word and we're going to teach God's Word. How do you treat pastors? How does God's Word teach us to treat pastors and to treat elders in the church? The structure of our church is we have an elder board that is our, our ruling board of the church, primarily in spiritual matters, but they oversee all matters of the church. And as a pastor, I'm just one of the elders. I'm, I'm one of a group of many. And my role just happens to be preaching, teaching, and administrating the church throughout the week as a, as a, a full-time vocational ministry. But this morning, we're going to talk about all of our elders and all of our spiritual leaders. And as we talk, whereas this text is specifically to elders and pastors, there are definitely applications we can make to all those over us. And we can make to the Sunday school teachers and those that are faithfully teaching God's Word and bringing God's Word into our lives. If you remember in, in 1 Timothy 3.1, in that section, we saw um, qualifications for eldership. But in 3.1, Paul says in the middle of this powder keg, it is a noble task to desire to be an elder. It is a noble work that elders do. And then he shares the qualifications. And so we come to this realizing this is an important job. It's a noble job. It's a God-given role in the church. So how do we as a family treat those in the family that are leading us? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll be looking starting at verse 17. And going all the way through chapter 6, verse 2, as, as he brings in another issue of following leadership outside of the church. And we'll be looking at, at four principles about how we as believers should treat our leaders, and especially in the first three principles, our spiritual leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Let's look at 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so right from the start, in the middle of this situation where some elders need to be rebuked, the first thing that Paul encourages Timothy and exhorts Timothy to do is to make sure we honor our elders well. We are to honor our elders well. And that's our first point today. As we come to this passage, we're to honor our elders well. Elders here is this, the, um, a word for, that is used corresponding to overseer sometimes in the New Testament. 
So whenever you see overseer, think elder. Whenever you see elder, think overseer. They're, they're used as synonyms. And these are a group of men that are, that are overseeing the church. We've talked about this when we looked at qualifications. And if you remember some of their responsibilities, you see a couple of them in this verse. We see they're to rule well or to oversee all of the affairs, administrate the affairs of the church. And we see at the end of verse 17, they labor in preaching and teaching. In 1 Timothy 3, we saw that one of the qualifications was there to be able to teach or apt to teach, some versions say. And so a reminder of duties of elders, they're to lead and govern the church. They're to teach and defend sound doctrine. They're to shepherd the flock, admonish and discipline the flock, equip the members for service, and be an example of godly life. And so Paul here says, let's start to talk about elders. This is a job description that is a difficult job description. It's a challenge to do all of those things well. There's a weight to this job. Paul says, let the elders who rule part of their description well be considered worthy of double honor. And by saying well, he's setting up a comparison between these two verses, and we'll get to verse 19 of those that are are teaching heresy, those that are teaching false doctrine, versus those that are ruling well. In in verse 17, we also see, just looking at the cast of characters, who's he writing about? We have the elders, who are the the ruling body, in our case, a board of elders. But then he, he, um, he calls out a subset of those elders, those that labor in preaching and teaching. Those that labor in preaching and teaching. And preaching means literally to speak the Word. Speak the Word of God. Teaching is more training in doctrine and how to live. Because we know all elders were to be able to teach, but a few, it looks as if, were called out to spend and devote extra time to the study of God's Word and the transmission of God's Word. In fact, one of the ways we know that is that word labor. That word labor means to, to do something to the point of exhaustion. Not that this is, is an exhausting job, but it refers to how much time is spent on it, how much energy is given to it. Elders that are preaching and teaching devote an inordinate amount of time to knowing God's Word, to transmitting God's Word. They're gifted in preaching and teaching. And so that's where that's the background we get to honor. We have the board of elders, which is the ruling party of the church. And then some of those that rule, a subset of those, are called to preach and teach, usually in vocational ministries. Most commentators would say that that last half is referring to those that are on staff or those pastors that are on staff because they've given up working an outside job because of the time that it takes to study and be faithful to God's Word. Make sense? So we have a, a couple of different groups here. But the, the key to this verse and, and why we say we're to honor our elders well, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered or intentionally thought of worthy of double honor. And the word double honor, you might look at that and say, huh? What, what does that mean? And we know from our, our talk on widows, we know from our talk on honoring your fathers and mothers, that the word honor has multiple meanings, it has multiple connotations. One of them is to esteem highly or to value highly, to set a high value on or a high price on. And so we, we have one aspect of that word has to do with how we view them, how we think of them. 
And this is saying, think of your elders, think of those in leadership highly, value them highly. They are doing a valuable, difficult job, so value them highly. We also saw from our our discussion on widows and, and the Pharisees with Jesus and their mothers and fathers that one of the key usages of this word had, had to do with monetary um, payment or coming and giving them a salary or giving them support financially. And that is clearly one of the things that Paul is talking about here because in verse 18 he clarifies that and says, yes, we're talking about your attitude towards your elders. We're also talking about your pocketbook, how you're willing to support them. Are you willing to put action to your attitudes? And so honor always has those two characteristics. It's the same word that in English we get honorarium from. What's an honorarium? It's a payment to someone who teaches something as a, as a, a reward or as a um, compensation for the time and effort they've put into that. And so when we think honor, think both honor, think honorarium, especially as we come to this passage. Verse 18 there says, for the Scripture says, and he appeals to both the Old Testament and the words of Christ, for the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. And this was rooted in the Old Testament and it was expected and understood that those that, that labored in the work of God, that, that vocationally labored, should be rewarded for that. The idea is, and this comes from Deuteronomy 25.4, The idea is, okay, these oxen would be strapped to yoke around a mill and they would go in circles dragging this heavy stone across the the grain. And, And it said, as they're doing that, as they're working, as they're laboring, let them eat. Let them eat. Let them, let them have a reward for their duties. Because some would get a little greedy and a little stingy and they'd put a muzzle on their ox because that ox was eating their profits. How dare the ox? And they weren't thinking ahead, because if the ox dies, you have a problem. But it, the, the, the principle out of Deuteronomy that, that Paul is quoting here is don't muzzle the ox. He's working hard. Reward him for that. And Paul is, is basically saying if God was concerned about animals, if God was concerned about oxen, how much more is God concerned about his servants? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. How much more should his church be considered of his servants? It's interesting that, that even in the Old Testament, this is how the Levites um, were treated. Turn to 2 Chronicles 31.4 in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 31.4. And we have here a description of how things worked in, in the nation of Israel. And how the, the Levites and the priests were, be treat, were to be treated who devoted their life and all of their time to serving God and to ministering to others in, in the temple and in the tabernacle and, and in the sacrificial system. And in Second Chronicles 31.4 says, And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that might, they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. And so the idea was, support them financially, give a portion to them so they can be free to minister to you spiritually. So they can be free to do the work that it takes to minister to you well. You don't want someone to come up here after having read the passage for ten minutes. 
So let's talk about the passage and just give some ideas about the passage. There is a work and a labor for anyone that teaches, whether it be up here on Sunday morning, whether it be in your Sunday school classes, whether it be in children's Sunday school classes, there is a labor that goes into teaching well. In the Second Chronicles, and, and Paul here uses the same principle to say, that's a valuable labor. Facilitate it. Make it happen. Because we all suffer if it doesn't happen. So in verse 18, he appeals to the Old Testament. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. And then he appeals to the words of Christ. The laborer deserves his wages. And Christ is using a word here that's a, a farmhand or a servant. And he's using it out of Luke ten seven when he's commissioning the 70 to go. And he says it's okay to, to eat and take meals because the laborer is deserving of his wages. So Paul appeals to the Old Testament and to the words of Christ, which we have in the New Testament. It's reaffirmed a number of other times in 1 Corinthians and Galatians 6. But Paul is making a case for honor to those that are elders and pastors. Now, for those here that are on the elder board, keep in mind the two illustrations he uses are an ox and a farmhand. Not necessarily the most flattering. So, so elders, how are, you, how are you doing at being oxen? But what's the point? He's using illustrations, but he's also showing there's not a superiority. There's a difficulty. There's a labor to the job. It's not that, oh, we're putting someone on a pedestal and, and giving them money or giving them support. And this is hard in an era where on TV we keep seeing pastors that have gold-plated mansions and 25 cars and just an excess that is sinful. And, and, and the same way that we can then pendulum away from that and say, well, we're going to keep our pastors humble and we're going to keep them holy by, by giving them you know, $2 an hour. The same pendulum that can go there was happening here when elders were teaching falsehoods and people were starting to write off all of the elders. And we must be careful. And this is why I believe Paul starts with honor instead of rebuke. Honor those that are serving well. It may be hard work, but it's not bad work. It's a glorious work. And so double here, what does it mean they should have double honor? Some have said, well, they should get double the pay. I'm not going to say that this morning. You don't have to walk out right now. How do you even quantify that? Double whose pay? Double my son's pay? Double the, or double last year's pay? That's not the point. It wasn't trying to give a quantitative answer. Double also means twofold. The same word means twofold or abundant. And so the idea here is to, to be generous with honor and also twofold honor. Remember, there's two different aspects of honor, both an appreciation, a high esteem, and a financial support. I believe that's the best way to understand this is Paul is saying, make sure you do both. Make sure you, you appreciate, make sure you encourage, make sure you respect and value highly, but also make sure you support well. I can just imagine Timothy as he has to give this message. Okay, church, this is what we're going to do. But it's an important message. And so we see two parts, the A and the B in your notes. 
we honor well by paying our pastors a fair, livable, honoring wage. We honor well by paying our pastors a fair, livable, honoring wage. It's not just to pay them well, it's not just so they're rich, but it would be dishonoring not to. As we said, this, allow, this has some advantages. It allows a faster pastor to focus on preaching and teaching with less distractions. If a pastor is going home or an, a, a, a staff member is going home and all the time wondering how are we even going to survive, how are we going to make the bills, that takes away from time that could be spent on thinking about leadership, thinking about God's Word. I've known a number of pastors who have had to get second jobs and, and just work an inordinate amount of hours just to feed their families. We honor well by paying our pastors a fair livable wage. About 15 years ago, I I knew of a church that that took this verse seriously and and said, we we need to take this a little more seriously and formed a committee and said, are we giving a, a livable wage? Are we giving a fair wage by comparing with other jobs of similar education and similar requirements? Are we giving giving an honoring wage and changed completely how they view compensation? What a wonderful testament to what Paul is talking about here. And that church was Village Bible Church. And so, to bring this up, I commend this church because so many of you have taken this so seriously to say we are going to honor our elders, we are going to honor our pastors. And so I don't come with these verses today with a stick. I come by saying thank you. Because you have taken God's Word seriously. Even our discussion at the business meeting, and I know there was lots of discussion, and and we've talked about it, the heart of that was let's take care of our pastors. That is a godly thing. And so we honor well by paying our pastors a fair, livable, honoring wage. We also honor well by valuing their work and ministry. By valuing their work and ministry, respect and appreciation. We easily, because of our natural man, fall into criticism. When someone is over us making decisions, you can always find something you disagree with. Always. And so we honor by not going towards criticism, but by going to respect, by following well, by appreciating. And one of the things that, that I know our elders is so valuable to them is when someone shares just a way that their ministry has blessed them. Just a simple thing. Hey, this is, this is why I appreciate you. And I I watch our elders as they share those things and that gives them energy to continue the work. It gives them energy to keep going. And so when we think of honor, it's not just financial, but it's esteeming highly. And I encourage you to keep that up, especially with our elders and our staff. Make sure they know how they're ministering well. Those, Those words are worth more than any paycheck. Because they give spiritual strength and an ability to go on. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. 
And so Paul says, if we're to move forward with the gospel, if we're to move forward with the work of Christ, we need to make sure we're honoring those within the church that God has placed in leadership. Thank you for your work in that. Then we move to verse 19. And Paul has to deal with some very difficult situations in the church. And the second way that we're to treat leadership and to, to, to treat our elders and to think about pastors and elders is we are to hold our elders and pastors accountable and discipline when necessary. We are to hold our elders and pastors accountable and discipline when necessary. Sometimes the pendulum can go so far to the honor side that we elevate someone so high that we will never confront sin. And we will never deal with what needs to be dealt with. And Paul knows that at Ephesus they need to do that. Let's read verses 19-21. through 21. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Serious verses. Stern verses. Because there will always be those that try to destroy ministry, but yet, how do we, how do we protect elders from false charges like Joseph and Jesus and some others came under? But how do we also confront and hold elders accountable. Each of those verses corresponds with three instructions from Paul. The first in verse 19 is to investigate carefully. Investigate carefully. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The idea behind admit is to acknowledge as valid. To entertain. And Paul is saying, don't even go down that path unless there's multiple witnesses. And, and this is not setting up a higher standard for elders to some, somehow keep them in leadership. We know from Deuteronomy 19.15 and a number of verses in the Old Testament, this was the law for every Jew. You weren't to entertain a, a charge unless there were multiple witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so as we're looking to correct, as we're looking to, okay, how do we hold accountable? Are there two or three witnesses? Are there multiple people? Usually not in the same family because you can sort of have a, a voting block there. But are there responsible adults who have seen this? And this is a, a form of protection for the elder. Because... It's a protection from false, arbitrary accusations. Calvin said, None are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. They may perform their duties correctly and conscientiously, yet they never avoid a thousand criticisms. And so because of that, we do things in our children's ministry like saying no adult is to be alone with the kids. Because then there's multiple witnesses and there's accountability with that. We, we do that in a lot of areas to protect those that are in leadership from false accusations. But the challenge here of verse 19 is to investigate carefully. Don't just hear some complaint against a leader or an elder and run with it. But to check it out. 
make sure it's true before it even goes any further. And so that's the first step. He's, he's outlining a process here. The next step of the, the process is discipline publicly those that continue. And, and in between, sort of in between A and B, is the idea that if it's found to be true, you confront and you go to them. And you give them a chance to hear the charges, to give them a chance to respond. Because then in verse 20, we read, as for those who persist in sin. And, and the, the verb for persist there is a present participle. And I was never great in English, so I'll, I'll explain a participle a little bit. A participle represents ongoing action or action that continues. Usually in English, participles have an ing ending. Okay, think of the difference between run and running. Run means he ran or, or he, you know, it's sort of this static thing that happened. Running, what does that bring to mind? It's ongoing, right? He's running right now. And so that's the usage of the word here in verse 20 is those that persist in sin or that are still sinning. And that means a rebuke has happened uh, and and, um, the charges have been shared and the person has not repented and they have not turned around is a very dangerous place to be in. Matt Redman tells a story. He's a worship leader of, of one time his pastor came to the worship team after a service and, and confronted them and said, you guys are performing, not leading in worship. This is wrong. And out of that, all of the worship team left the church except for Matt Redman. And, and he, he took some time off and, and he was angry at first, but then he realized that was a valid rebuke. Someone had pointed out valid sin in his life. Came back several months later and changed completely how that church worshipped and how he led worship. Out of that, he, he wrote the song, Heart of Worship. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. Not me. An illustration of a man that was willing to take a criticism and learn and to change. But in verse 20, these are elders who say, no, I'm not sinning. I will continue. I am, I am not wrong. And so Paul gives some instructions there. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. And we might think, well, that's shameful. Well, yes, in leadership, you're called to a higher standard. We're, we're called to a stricter judgment in James 3.1. And so when a leader is sinning and continuing in sin, there must be a public acknowledgement of that sin, a public rebuke of that sin, or else what happens? The sin is validated. It's okay. And so Paul here says for elders and pastors, and it's a, a different standard for congregational members, but for elders and pastors who are in leadership, that public leadership requires a public addressing when they are in sin. And it's not an easy verse to read. It's not an easy verse to follow. But they're to be rebuked in the presence of all. And why, in verse 20? As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And it's not saying fear of Timothy or fear of leadership. It's saying fear of God. That sin is serious, Sin will not be tolerated. It will not be allowed. 
We could talk for a while on what happens when someone does repent, and there, there's a, a variety of different aspects to that. There are some sins that even when someone repents of, it necessitates a, a, a removal from ministry. Um, because the sin, there needs to be time to show repentance. There needs to be time to heal from that. But here he's, he's dealing with elders that know they're wrong and refuse to admit it. And finally, verse 21. So we have investigate carefully. B was disciplined publicly, those that continue. And C, correct impartially. Correct impartially. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. It can be hard when it's a leader that you've known for a long time, when it's a dear friend. It can be easy to just gloss over it. Say, well, it'll, it'll hurt more if I have to, to confront this elder. And this is a challenge to Timothy to stay the course. To not give special treatment to one or another elder. Look at the witnesses. You can see the seriousness of this by who the witnesses are to this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, probably referring to those that followed Christ rather than rebelled and followed Satan. So we have a heavenly audience. And Paul is telling Timothy, God and Jesus Christ and the angels, the supernatural, are watching what you're about to do when there is rebellion against God Almighty. Do you see the seriousness that Paul is trying to convey? This is not a light thing, and so he uses that to help Timothy be motivated to deal with this. And then I charge you, or I command you, to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. There is a huge danger if we let sin go unchecked. If we don't confront, especially in our leaders, areas where they are not walking with God. And and they persist in that. In 2004, the Boston Public Library opened a new exhibit, commemorated the 85th anniversary of what really, I think, is a pretty strange event, the Great Molasses Flood. And so I read a little bit more. I'm like, that's interesting. Killed 21 people, injured 150 people. And what happened in 1919, so 85 years before, one of the the places there had an enormous steel vat that had molten molasses, so this this hot, sticky molasses. 2.3 million gallons, so not a small tank. In fact, the tank was 50 feet high and 240 feet around. So this is a huge tank. Uh, And one of the days, it... It, it collapsed. It broke open. It crushed freight cars. It destroyed buildings, wagons, drowned people. One author called it the dark tide. And what they found out had been happening is the officials were, were aware that this tank was failing. There was constant leaks in the tank. And rather than fixing the leaks and addressing the leaks, they came up with a different solution. Let's paint it. In fact, Let's paint it the same color as molasses so we don't know there's any leaks. And that's what they did. And they didn't deal with the issue and people died. When we have sin, and and I speak to all of us and I speak to our elders and leaders and Sunday school teachers, when there is sin that is unchecked in our lives, we're painting over leaks that are harming people. 
That's why we must have integrity and godliness and leadership. And Paul here says, Timothy, yes, you should honor your leaders. You should honor them doubly, but you should also hold them accountable. He goes on in verse 22, we are to be cautious about who we put into leadership. We're to be cautious or careful about who we put into leadership. Verse 22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And the laying on of hands we've talked about before, but it was a conferring of authority. It would be like our ordination, where we are ordaining someone to a ministry. In fact, in our Constitution, we say that our our elders and our deacons and our deaconesses are ordained to that ministry. They are equipped and commissioned to that ministry. And so Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't just do it quickly, willy-nilly, and say, oh, there you go, we need more leaders. Nor take part in the sins of others. Probably referring to if you commission someone to leadership, if you vouch for them, and then they lead people astray, who's responsible? They are, but you share the responsibility. And so we see, don't share in the sins of others because you become part of their sins. Keep yourselves pure. And so, Paul's first instruction is don't make hasty appointments to leadership. We saw that in the elder qualifications. Remember chapter 3, verse 6? Don't put someone into eldership that's a recent convert. Same principle. And so in Ephesus, it looks like they did that. They put some unqualified men in. They're leading the church astray. So Paul says, the easiest way to avoid disciplining an elder is to not put them in in the first place. To have a a, a higher fence, a higher standard for who you put into leadership. To take that seriously. When we come to a business meeting, when we're voting on elders and deacons and deaconesses, any position, I encourage you to take that seriously. That is not a time to rubber stamp and say, yes, 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 yes. That is a time to go back to 1 Timothy 3 and to Titus and to look at the qualifications and say, does this man, does this woman fit the biblical qualifications? Now, we mentioned when we talked about qualifications online on our website, we have a document that is like eight pages that, that help us explain the biblical qualifications and ask questions about a candidate because we want to take this seriously. Why? Not just to protect ourselves, but because God has instructed us to and we honor His Word. So be cautious when we vote. Be aware. Verse 23, many have said, what's that doing there? No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Because then 24 goes back to being cautious about who we put into leadership. This is best viewed, and many of your translations now put parenthesis around it. When you're talking to someone, do you ever just sort of interject something else that that comes to mind? Just a little thought and then move on. I I tried to think of of how we do that sometimes. I couldn't come up with a good thing other than baseball, but um, where we suddenly go off in another direction. That's probably what Paul is doing here because it's probably coming off, Timothy, keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. And if you remember from earlier teaching in 1 Timothy, People were saying to be pure, to follow God, you have to avoid all these things. And, and they said a life of asceticism where you, where you give up all these things that God has provided. Marriage included. Food and drink included. So quite possibly, Timothy had given up any sort of wine as part of trying to be pure. And Paul is saying, okay, you're sick now because the water's bad. It's a very practical suggestion. 
The water in Ephesus caused people to be sick, but the wine, part of the fermentation process, is, is it, it killed some of those, those bacteria that were causing people to get sick. And so it was actually a little healthier to mix some of that in. So that's probably just an aside saying, keep yourself pure, but also take care of yourself. Because then in verse 24, he moves back to the subject at hand. Don't judge a potential leader hastily on first impressions. Don't judge a potential leader hastily on first impressions. Listen to 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And what he's encouraging here is take time to truly discover what someone is like before you put them into leadership. And he uses some real practical things that at first I'm like, what is he saying? But the idea is this. Some people's sins are obvious, right? Would we all agree with that? And some people are really good at hiding their sins, and so it's not that obvious until you get to know them. And he applies the same thing to good works. Some people are charismatic and good leaders and you want to put them into leadership. But others, oftentimes the, the, the quieter kind, just serve as servants and do incredible things for God and never publicly talk about it. And it takes time to realize that. And so what he's saying is don't, don't hurry up and make a judgment about someone. Make sure they're not sinning over time. But also, time will allow you to see who's really walking with God, even if they're not the most boisterous personality. So this is a great principle to keep us from following personalities and instead follow God. First impressions may not always be right. First impressions usually aren't right. <laughs> you know, you've heard the phrase love at first sight, and we all sort of laugh at that, right? Well, the, the, the challenge is that because you don't know the person yet. So Paul is saying, take time. I love what John Stott, the term that he uses for this is that it's the iceberg principle. The iceberg principle. And that gives me a great picture of this. An iceberg, what do you see on the top? 10% of the iceberg, right? Roughly. You see just a portion. Titanic found that out. There's a lot more to the iceberg. And, and John Stott is saying, people are like that. We're like icebergs. When you first get to know somebody, you're seeing 10%, usually the 10% they want you to see. Take some time and find out what's under the surface before we throw someone into leadership. Be aware of hidden sin and hidden good works. And so we're to be cautious about who we put into leadership. And finally, point number four, as we move to chapter six, we move away from elders to a more general idea of how do you follow any leadership. Follow other authority that is over you well. Follow other authority over you well. Don't follow with gripes. Don't follow with an attitude. Follow them well. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And we have a situation here of bond servants and, and slavery, and there was obviously all kinds of abuses of it, but also in the culture there was, was bond servants that were more like employees. 
that would voluntarily work or that would work to pay off a debt and were part of a household. They were used as managers and clerks and um, just an incredible array of jobs. And in those two verses, you see in verse 1, Paul is talking about those who are under unbelieving masters. Bosses that may not deserve respect. Bosses that may not deserve honor. And he says, let all those who are under a yoke as bondservants regard, decide, intention that their own masters are worthy of honor. And there's that word again. And Paul is saying, how you execute your job, how you honor your boss, directly affects the gospel. And that's where he goes with it at the end of verse 1. So, so that... And those are words to underline and say, okay, we know why. It actually says why. We don't have to guess. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. We've called this series Entrusted because over and over we see we're entrusted with the Gospel. And Paul is saying, how you follow authority will define... That's not our banner for Entrusted. We don't... Oh, there we go. How will that will affect whether you're about his purpose, whether you're able to focus on his purpose? Because your boss is watching how you work, and your boss is making decisions about Christ based on how you work. And in this room, Christians should be the best employees a boss has ever had. And it 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 saddens me deeply when that's not the case. And so we're called to respect them whether they're worthy of it or not. To speak well of them. To not participate in the water cooler talk, tearing them down. But to work well. To work appropriately. To work hard. Not for a paycheck. Not to get a promotion. But for something far greater because we're entrusted with the Gospel and we've been given the responsibility to share Jesus with them. And you might be doing that with your actions. Work the same way whether your boss is in the room or not. Don't use the boss key on on your solitaire game. Just don't play it. And do the work you're supposed to do. Then in number two, he moves to those who have believing masters because it was a unique situation where in the church you had masters, you had slaves, we're all brothers in Christ. And some of the employees, some of the bond servants were then going to work and saying, we're brothers in Christ. You can't tell me what to do. Well, actually, I'm your boss, the master might say. And so Paul just deals with it and says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, serve all the more or all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Love one another. If, if we have bosses who are believers, all the more we should be respectful and honoring because we're showing God's love to them. We're enabling them to focus on ministry. So at the end of the series on elders, we've put two verses that say, follow other authority over you well. So Paul gives us some instructions. Honor those in authority over us in the church well. Hold them accountable. Be careful who we put into leadership. And finally, thinking outside of the church, learn to follow well. Those are some great, great instructions for how we deal with our natural man that just chafes under having anyone over us. But the ultimate purpose is that we're examples for Christ. We're a testimony for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I thank you for your word. 
Thank you for challenging us. Lord, I pray that you would would challenge us to follow every part of this word, to honor well, Lord, to correct well, to take care of who we put into leadership. Lord, that we would be a church that is pleasing to you in every area. May nothing distract us from your purpose. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.